Hello, welcome to the Mirror Podcast. I'm Peter Dines, a director at Mirror, and welcome to the second episode of our monthly podcast. I'm joined once again by Dr. Ye Tao, the founder and director, and he will be our educator on this journey. Dr. Tao received a doctorate from the Department of Chemistry at MIT in 2015. He also completed the research requirements for a doctorate in physics in Zurich. This before running a lab at Harvard's Roland Institute. As Dr. Tao studied the serious and current impacts of global warming, he knew he had to refocus his energy on tackling the most important issue of our time. To do that, he set up MIR, Mirrors for Earth's Energy Rebalancing. MIR is a non-profit organization focusing on surface reflection technology and mitigation research, and also climate education, which this podcast is obviously part of. We'll be discussing everything to do with climate reality to feasible mitigation to adaptation to the latest scientific papers and what's going on with the MIR project on an ongoing basis. If you do have any suggested topics that you wish us to cover, then you can tweet us at MIRSRM on X or alternatively contact us through the website MIR.org. Like I said, the organization is a non-profit and we're funded by individuals at this stage, so any donations are always welcome to further our research and humanitarian efforts. You can go to mir.org forward slash donate. In this podcast, we'll look at the origins of Mir and why Dr. Tao is specifically researching surface reflection technology and also explain the meaning of CROI, cooling return on investment. Okay, so uh, yeah, let's... Let's get into it. How's everybody's health? Everybody okay? Because I know it's people don't know um, it's uh, malaria and um, other diseases are quite prevalent there. So how's everybody's health this week? Good? Uh, yeah, they're getting uh, better this, this week. Everybody's <laughs> in good shape. Yeah, there was a wave of uh, uh, just sickness and uh, just a couple, uh, about two, three weeks ago. Mm. I think half the team uh, were out of commission for, for a few days. Yeah, yeah. Can't be easy. And I mean, and and in terms of again, when you're trying to cope with things like that as well, and, and you're dealing with with the heat as well, how, how does that make it even more difficult? Yeah, I think there's just a new paper that came out that analyzes really reduction in uh, productivity as a function of heating and uh, humidity, and it's even more severe than we previously uh, previously thought. So that really explains why it's so much harder just to, to do uh, things that appears easy when you're up north in Europe, in Northern Europe, for example. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's not get too much into it because <laughs> I think we'll go into that paper actually in more detail, uh, maybe on one of our podcasts as well, because um, it was really interesting and it's obviously something that we're having to look at with our projects and um, and something that we're trying to address, obviously. So so I just want to go back. Um, and Last time we spoke, uh, you know, about your rather dramatic shift you made in your career, you know, moving away from, from nanotechnology and becoming interested in, in, in tackling the climate crisis. And I mean, I know you started with like a, a very large student cohort as well. Um, but can you talk a bit more about how Mir actually, how Mir came about and, and how that was all, because I know there were students from all over, over the country involved as well. So how did that, how did that all come about? Um, so roughly, I think after about two years of reading and analysis between um, 2017 and 2019, uh, I first had a chance to uh, communicate the idea publicly at a drawdown event uh, uh, in State College. Uh, I think that's one of their events. Uh, it was in the form of a poster the back then because it was uh, the first time it was uh, you know, uh, communicated to the world. And uh, the plan was to uh, maybe 
starting in 2020 to really get into some of the experimental work. But uh, we all know what happened uh, in 2020. Everything got shut down, especially uh, you know academic labs. So we couldn't really start anything um, uh, hands-on. Uh, and uh, during that summer, many students um, in the States back then were also unable to attend uh, their usual internship that they secured uh, before a pandemic a lockdowns. So uh, we more or less just announced that we have uh, this new project and we were looking for uh, the students to participate in, in, the, in the research. And, uh, and then just by chance, due to the pandemic, we had a, a, a lot of uh, interest. And we um, have sort of an open door policy that persists to, to this day. If you are interested in learning with us, we welcome you to be part of the team and uh, contribute in any way you can. So back in 2020, we had a cohort of about 20 to 30 uh, undergrads and uh, master's students from uh, around the world, but mostly in, in the States. Uh, these were students uh, who couldn't do their uh, usual in-person summer internship. And then we uh, hosted uh, everything virtually. And uh, I think uh, overall it was a very positive learning experience for everybody. Uh, the students uh, you know, really became experts in their respective fields. We had the uh, roughly three to four-person teams, each of them looking at the, one of the uh, important aspects that you have to understand in order to fully understand the impact, the causes, and the future ramifications of uh, global warming. Uh, so these include such things as uh, uh, how ecosystem trophic levels would be impacted by perturbation to uh, the primary producer, either as a result of uh, uh, acidification or as a result of the warming. And there's also a group looking at uh, ways to deacidify the, the ocean using any engineering or uh, nature-based solution available. And there's also a group looking at uh, policy and uh, solar engineering in general. So I think it was a, a very also a useful period for myself to really uh, review the many hundreds to thousands of papers that I had to, uh, had to read in order to you know, get a grasp of the whole picture uh, two years prior, uh, is to really uh, transmit that, that knowledge to the cohort of, uh, of students. Yeah. And the many of them uh, were actually uh, very close to uh, completing research papers. Mm. Uh, but you know the, the system is one where you really have to uh, work and uh, get an income. So mm -hmm. because of the lack of uh, continuity in funding and uh, the dictates of you know having to move on to uh, masters and PhD programs. Many people uh, they were not able to really complete uh, the final stretch. Uh, so that's a bit unfortunate, but overall, I think uh, so. Basically, to answer your question, that's how it, we started off yeah. with a large group of students. Yeah, and um, I mean, I know obviously we had to focus our efforts more or less on on surface reflection technology and really, really, really focus on thermal mitigation. But are you still in, are you still in contact with some of those groups about some of the other ideas? Because I, I know I had a conversation just yesterday with someone from the Wall Street Journal and they were asking about nature-based solutions um, for drawdown in the oceans. And, um, and I couldn't explain exactly what we were working on at that time, but I, I know there was, we were looking at things. So I'm just wondering if you're still actually in contact with some of those groups. Uh, right now, we are not really uh, in contact, but we can certainly 
you know, uh, really re revive some of older projects if there is a, a substantial interest or, or funding available. So, for example, uh, our approach in the end that we uh, proposed as a way to decertify the ocean is to couple it to uh, both protein production and also uh, renewable energy uh, production. And um, in addition to that, protection of coastal ecosystems by uh, protecting them from buffering them from acidification. So that particular idea is to um, leverage the high uh, calcium carbonate contents of bivalves and the fact that uh, the farming of these uh, uh, you know, bivalves like oysters, clams, doesn't require any uh, fertilizers. So they, uh, people in the field of uh, shellfish uh, aquaculture call it the gardening because it's very analogous mm -hmm. to as if you're producing primary producers. You don't have to feed them any, anything. You just <laughs> put them in the proper location with the proper sunlight so that uh, they can feed on the, uh, the phytoplankton that uh, are naturally around, especially in coastal areas where there's a lot of uh, um, eutrophication problems, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, these bivalves not only uh, can provide a source of protein, but can uh, mitigate uh, eutrophication and the water pollution. So you have this uh, rather environmental way of producing protein, and they are generally of high value, as uh, you know, in any high-end restaurant you have uh, scallop as one of the, the dishes, started dishes. So the transportation of this, uh, the shells, which contains the carbon from uh, the location of production to uh, restaurants, basically human habitation areas, is more or less for free. So they get a free ride because of the high value of the, of the meat. Yeah. So whatever you do with the shell, uh, there are so many things you can do, right? You can simply bury it, uh, and that uh, more or less uh, capture some of the carbon from the ocean. If you, if you bury it, it will be stable for a long time. That's how basically all of the carbon eventually turns into limestone, mm -hmm. uh, right? Uh, but one slight concern about just burying uh, the shells um, is that you eventually, over you know decades or maybe several centuries, you start to impact ocean chemistry by depleting uh, the calcium component. Even though I think. If I remember the, the figures well, uh, um, you deplete the calcium at roughly 0.1% mm -hmm. uh, per year at the current uh, level of annual emission in CO2. If you somehow grew so much that you captured all, you know, 30 megatons of uh, gigatons, 30, 38 gigatons of CO2 in the form of shells, then you start to deplete the calcium component. And uh, in a you know any truly sustainable system, you have to have all the different elements, different materials return to their original place at the end of the year, at the end of the cycle. So you cannot design a system where you have a, a linear transfer of one component in one form to another. Uh, so a more advanced you know uh, way to deal with uh, the shell would be to uh, put them into giant solar furnaces. Uh, concentrate sunlight onto them such that uh, they attain a temperature of roughly 750 to 800 degrees Celsius, which is very easily feasible. Uh, so in 2021, we actually demonstrated at Harvard in our first ever experiment, 650 degrees Celsius, using a very small reactor that's roughly the size of a, a, a mug. So if you generally increase the size of these systems and also the collectors, you, you will be able to better attain higher temperatures because of higher uh, volume to surface ratio, which 
helps you uh, retain the heat relative to surface losses, radiation, and other convective losses. So it's uh, entirely possible to mm -hmm. use uh, solar thermal energy to then convert this calcium carbonate, which is naturally sourced, to um, calcium oxide, uh, which is basically lined, used in cement, mm -hmm. uh, plus uh, CO2, which comes off as a pure gas. Uh, and that gas, you can do a number of things with it. Either you bury it, that would be like you capture it in the storage, mm -hmm. or you can you can use it for people propose to use the pure CO2 for eventual uh, electrocatalytic synthesis, say of polymers of plastic or other uh, materials, or you can just bury it. Let's say, yeah, uh, we're not experts in that technology, so we rely on other people. Yeah, and then the calcium oxide that you generate is not uh, wasted. Right, it's a very useful stuff for uh, uh, the building industry, but it, you can also use it uh, for energy production. Uh, because what happens if you have worked with calcium oxide is that you, when you add water, it uh, creates a lot of heat. And uh, that heat you can harness for a variety of uh, domestic applications, including just reheating your lunch. You can use it to heat hot water uh, or in a, a more industrial setting, you can use the heat drive turbines to generate electricity. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the, uh, the solar thermal energy that you capture in the process of uh, separating CO2 from the shells also gives you this very use useful material coming, or a calcium oxide that contains energy that can be used in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, at the end of the day, you have calcium hydroxide, which again is very useful because this thing, uh, calcium hydroxide, is a base. Uh, if you have taken chemistry, you understand the OH minus um, ion is, is basic because it can neutralize a hydronium ion, H3O plus, yeah. by combining with uh, the proton that's attached to the water molecule. So generally, OH minus is, is a basic. So calcium hydroxide, Ca double OH, uh, is a, in principle a base. And the base, can be used to neutralize acid and the ocean is becoming acidic mm -hmm. so when you add this stuff to the ocean you help to buffer uh, wherever you're adding it against the acidification and since humans are already on the coast utilizing this stuff then it's obvious that uh, you just put it near the coast then you can uh, buffer the coastal ecosystem against uh, the impact of acidification mm -hmm. and that completes the loop because then you would have returned yeah, the calcium back to the location where you source it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, and the calcium oxide has another nice property, which is it doesn't really dissolve very quickly, which is nice because that means the release is slow, because you don't want to create a zone that's uh, so basic that you actually kill every the other direction in pH. But you want something that that slow release, and it's uh, fairly straightforward to design engineering systems, you know, to slow down the rate of release by putting them into certain containers of various geometries with various diffusion constants. Um, but the, um, the main story I want to uh, end uh, by telling this story is uh, uh, we really need, you know, in the future, should we be able to survive uh, becoming um, global warming catastrophes, is that everything we design needs to be a closed cycle system. Uh, we have to achieve material closure in all the engineering cycles that we designed to do. And in this one, the case of calcium from the ocean, we take it up and we put it back. That's one example where we have achieved material 
exposure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Buying time is uh, for survival to, to do those types of things. <laughs> that's what we're, that's what we're keen on. That's what we're about. And that's, that's a very comprehensive question or answer that, that I wasn't expecting to, to answer so comprehensively, but I, I certainly can clip that for, um, for our friend at the wall street journal. Um, if he wants to know more information about what we were working on. So listen, I just want to go back to, so I want to get back down and, you know, to the origins of Mir, obviously. And, um, it's obviously very difficult to set up an organization um, to, 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 to do this sort of research as well. But I just, I just want to ask, you know, why, so why Mir? So people know that it's why you set up Mir and, and why you're working on surface reflection technology and you're not working on other kind of mitigation schemes, uh, thermal mitigation schemes. Why, why are you working on surface reflection technology? Why did you come to that, to that point? Uh... So, so first of all, there, there's two steps to this process. Uh, the first step is to come to the conclusion that um, direct thermal mitigation is the, the only remaining option that we have. And the second stage is why, out of all the different uh, direct cooling methods, we're choosing to work with surface uh, reflection technologies. Um, so in, in the first part of the, the reasoning, uh, one really has to uh, examine all the different proposals that's out there. So one has to, you know, well, basically me in the very beginning, watch many lectures and uh, attend different seminars, virtual seminars, and listen to people uh, working in the renewable energy fields, in the natural solutions field, in the carbon capture storage fields, in the biochar fields, and ocean capture-based methods. So to get a general sense of uh, the rationale and approaches and then one has to sit down to really crunch the numbers uh, to understand what are the uh, material requirements, energy requirements for each of the approaches, and what are the state of the arts in each one, and what are uh, the prospects for each type of technology or concept for, uh, for, uh, to, to advance, uh, assuming you know, ideal case uh, scenarios. And after uh, this exercise, which you can imagine take, took me uh, two years, <laughs> Uh, it was quite depressing to, to realize mm -hmm. that essentially the totality of the so-called solutions that were being proposed mm -hmm. were, in fact, non-solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, what I mean by non-solutions is that even if everybody on Earth were somehow dictated by an authoritarian government to wake up every day and only do participate in the making of those solutions, at the uh, end of 20, 30 years, it wouldn't have really a measurable impact on uh, the course of the, the, uh, the climate. Mm -hmm. And that includes stopping to consume because of uh, aerosol cooling, right, which more or less compensates for the saving in short-term emissions over the 20, 30 years we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so, but in contrast, when we, uh, when we did the analysis for uh, solar radiation management-based approaches. It, it's quite clear that these methods would indeed uh, help to re reduce global average temperatures and the consequence uh, of predictable, predictable uh, weather events and extreme weather events. So that's uh, the reason behind the, the first step. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, a comprehensive uh, life cycle analysis of all the different approaches that have been uh, communicated in the public domain. And the second step of why we think surface-based uh, solar radiation management is uh, 
a, a, a suitable approach or feasible approach uh, is that we have to understand uh, people are busy with their lives and uh, we as a society have a limited uh, resource and uh, also because we have to design a, a system which is able to self-perpetuate far into the future and is compatible with a, a transition of the whole system forward, a future version of human civilization that is sustainable. Yeah. And so ideally you want a, a, a method that everybody participates in and which also in the process of implementation guides people towards such a future collaborative global uh, rational system. Um, uh, so that's point number one. But uh, from a, a more zoomed out uh, physics point of view, when you say implement mirrors at a, a local environment, you can induce dramatic cooling of the soil, for example, by several degrees, over 10 degrees at the surface of the soil. This uh, you know, magnitude of very strong local soil cooling is simply inaccessible to any other solar radiation management methods, including uh, SAI, stratospheric aerosol injection, and marine cult brightening, uh, which at saturation levels can probably del deliver um, you know, single digits, a couple degrees uh, of cooling. Uh, so mm -hmm. the ability to have such a high dynamic range at the local level gives you the opportunity to uh, perform different uh, local adaptation uh, uh, adaptation applications, including uh, you know, offsetting air conditioning costs, including drastically reducing the evaporation from both reservoirs and also agricultural fields. And the very basic human needs, which includes uh, uh, just the ability to harness water, food, and also secure shelter, can all be addressed if you can have a very uh, powerful and uh, easy control of the local microenvironment, uh, where temperature is one of the most important uh, tuning controlling parameters. Uh, so I think the, the ability of, uh, of surface-based reflection to induce such a high dyna dynamic range at the, the, the local level is one very important uh, advantage. Yeah. And one can also uh, conceptualize uh, you know, or zoom in on Earth. So we all know that you know, we are habitats of the planet, but we do not you know, live everywhere on the planet. For example, we're not in the air. And the, most of the biomass more or less uh, are, is situated within uh, 15 to, 15, uh, to 20 meters uh, of the surface. And uh, this very thin layer uh, is only one thousands or one ten thousands of the total thickness of the, uh, the atmosphere and the ocean. Mm -hmm. So uh, the most dramatic impact you know, of the uh, global warming crisis is on living organisms. And living organism is found in this very thin layer. So uh, it doesn't really matter you know, for organisms if, uh, say, the stratosphere were to warm up by two or three degrees, as long as somehow we can keep the troposphere uh, conditions more or less uh, the same. So surface-based 
reflection can give you both a very high dynamic range in XY, basically your uh, longitude and uh, latitude location, coordinate GPS location, but also uh, confine you know, the, the cooling to where it matters, where people and organisms live uh, at this very thin layer at the bottom of the troposphere. Mm -hmm. So it, then it's possible to use much less total uh, solar reflection to achieve a much larger biological impact. And you can really protect much of biosystems, biological systems, especially human agricultural systems, uh, at the level of um, total light reflection that, that doesn't really change the global average uh, temperature that much. Which also means you can induce uh, very strong adaptation uh, capabilities uh, without uh, risking you know, very high perturbation of uh, uh, circulation patterns. But of course, uh, and that's also a, a one route by which we can uh, slowly ramp up solar radiation management and learn the impact uh, of uh, such technologies on both local weather patterns and also regional weather patterns and eventually uh, enabling a fine tuning at the global level if should we scale this uh, to a scale that could in the end uh, bring down temperature by one or two degrees celsius and uh, these capabilities are i think absent in all the other proposals yes yes and um I mean, just to follow on from that, I mean, obviously, because people people have suggested that you just you just put so much of it, say, in the middle of an ocean, and um, and that might give you the, the mitigation scale cooling, but you wouldn't then uh, obviously have the the other local benefits in that case, would you? Uh, well, you wouldn't give you the uh, the local benefits, and I think really uh, concentrating on a very urgent need, you know, for uh, to satisfy human needs is where the solutions uh, need to be, be focused on. Mm -hmm. And we are 8 billion strong, right? It, it's either a liability or you know, a resource, depending on how you look at it. And we choose to look at it as a resource, we want to mobilize the whole population and to get everybody engaged. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the real reason why we were able to change climate for the whole planet is because there are so many of us, which also means we can change it together if we collectively uh, you know, adopted some very highly leveraged method uh, that's really relevant and makes common sense for all of our common well-being and the need. Uh, yeah, and I mean, just because uh, you, you touched on it slightly there as well, and I was going to ask this, but I mean, why we think MIR would be more a more democratic mitigation as well, because obviously some of the other schemes may be done by one or two kind of players, but in terms of MIR, it certainly should be more democratic, shouldn't it? Uh, it's more democratic because uh, every single household, every single individual can make their own decision. Uh, for example, our team currently uh, working in India in Pune, um, they're serving a whole community to see which households are interested in uh, receiving or participating in the, in the research. And it's not every family you know, that, is, that really needs uh, this mitigation. And some have their uh, roofs newly changed, so they don't want, really want to bother with us changing their roof again. Hmm. So uh, there is ability to decide at the single family, single household level whether you want to participate uh, in, 
in, in this uh, collective effort. Mm -hmm. And in the end, each neighborhood, each district, each city, each country can really implement uh, the technology to achieve the best local outcome for their different regions. Uh, there are areas where, for example, maybe in uh, some uh, Nordic cities where you know cooling isn't so much of a trouble, uh, so much of a, a problem, but you really want to save on energy heating in, the, in winter. So then you should design uh, mirror light redirection systems that really send light into your rooms and radiators in your in your, in your windows that uh, uh, gives you warmth in in the winter. So there's a different ways to, to utilize. Uh, surface reflection technology, not only for cooling, but you can capture the, the, the energy uh, to suit your local needs. And here in West Africa, most of the forests, as far as you know, I have seen with my eyes, just traveling uh, thousands of miles, driving around, they are being destroyed you know, by just, just for, um, for cooking, as a cooking field. Uh, Trees that are three meters in diameter are, are cut down and turned into charcoal for cooking. And uh, that inspired our team to develop solar uh, cooking devices that can uh, make rice and sauces. That's uh, typical of uh, West African cuisine. So you can certainly use you know, the same tool sets uh, for both capturing energy for a daily use, but also to reflect the light to uh, obtain a better living environment and at the same time reduce heat load on the whole planet and for your region and eventually also uh, it's manifested for the whole planet. Yeah. So that's why it's a, a very democratic approach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we could certainly do with some some right, light reflection here in Ireland during, during the winter times at, at times. Um, yeah, going back to, so going back to, again, why, why the concept as well? I just wanted, I want you to kind of speak about CROI why why is that why is that such a big part and why is why is that such an essential factor in your in your calculation so for for listeners uh, sorry for the the acronym CROI stands for cooling return on investment uh, so it, it's it's a term that we coined and it's inspired by various ideas one of which is uh, EROI energy return on investment that many might be more familiar with uh, so let's first talk about uh, EROI, energy return on investment. Uh, it's a metric used in the energy production industry to quantify the ease at which energy can be sourced, because you can also conceptualize energy as a crucial resource, um, getting which requires some uh, expenditure of uh, capital energy. Uh, so energy return on investment uh, for different things like uh, Fossil fuel and uh, renewable electricity uh, generally range between 100 uh, to maybe 10. Uh, so back in the days when oil was still plenty, for every barrel of oil uh, that you used in running your machinery, your transportation system, refinery system, you can get about 100 barrels of oil back. And uh, gradually that's been declining. And, uh, I don't know the exact number because I'm not in the field, but I think it's roughly around 30 right now. So for every barrel you investigate, maybe 30 back, uh, which is still good because for renewables, it's anywhere between five to 15, so roughly 10. Uh, so that, that's why uh, you know, uh, fossil fuel also has the edge because in the end because it's uh, cheaper because the real currency for uh, the planet is 
includes energy as one of the input parameters. So, uh, so why is uh, CROI, cooling return on investment, uh, uh, relevant? So now you have understood what the EROI is. Uh, CROI uh, refers to uh, what happens when you consider the cooling of the planet Earth. So when you want to cool something, you want to extract heat from it and move it somewhere else. Now that's not bothering your, your system, not bothering your fridge, not no longer in your room, and in our case, no longer in the Earth's biosphere, in the atmosphere and the oceans. So the task of cooling down the planet Earth is uh, to design processes that in the end is equivalent to uh, removing heat from the system into space. Eventually, that's where all the heat uh, sinks into. Uh, so for undertaking this uh, heat removal, you have to invest energy because energy is the fundamental uh, fuel, fundamental uh, currency for performing anything in this universe. Uh, so for to do any job, you have to you know, pay. And uh, the cooling the planet is no exception, regardless of how you do it, whether you plant trees, you know, you have to anyways, dig the hole, which comes from your, your breakfast energy. Uh, you have had to, to uh, carry you know, the, the different uh, uh, species of trees on, on your truck to the planting location, and that takes uh, fossil fuel, for example. So, so nothing is free. Anything you do, it takes energy. Uh, so one can then calculate uh, at the end of the process, what is the ratio of the heat energy that you remove from the system versus how much you uh, invested uh, in implementing the process. And obviously, higher the ratio, the more efficient your, your cooling method uh, from a purely uh, energy standpoint. Uh, so why is this ratio important? It's important because we don't have infinite access to energy. Otherwise, uh, we wouldn't be witnessing you know, uh, uh, expansion of the uh, different empires uh, into other regions, notably in the Middle East, in search of oil, because it's, in the end, uh, the ultimate currency uh, for the civilization. And because energy then is limited, and because everything else that matters to you requires energy, including uh, providing education to children, providing medical care for the elderly, and uh, uh, any other your daily uh, you know, food requirements, heating or housing in winter, et cetera, et cetera. All of these are essential energy requirements. So we cannot mm -hmm. spend all the six times 10, 20 joule of energy per year mm -hmm. uh, to cool down the planet. So we can ask the question of how much energy we really can, you know, expend to do this, uh, say, quote, side project that is, uh, <laughs> you know, dealing with global warming. Yeah. Essentially, that's not, not how the world is treating it, you know, a weekend hobby project uh, at the best. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, I, I will spare the listener of, of the, the details, but, but in the end, you can calculate uh, based on other empirical analyses of how uh, you know human systems perform, as uh, you expend more and more energy on quote non-essential stuff, we basically cannot afford to spend more than two or three percent of our total energy production to these side projects, and that is a very uh, stringent uh, you know requirement. That's because uh, because compared to the energy that humans can harness. 
the five, the six times 10 to 20 joules per year. Uh, global warming is a much larger quantity of energy that's being dumped into the ocean, into the atmosphere every year. The ratio between a global warming heat and the human consumption of energy is roughly more or less 500 to 1,000. So for, for simplicity's sake, mm. just remember it's a three orders of magnitude difference. So, so that's ma massive. Right? So, so therefore, um, oh, sorry, pardon, it's two, two orders of magnitude different. So the, uh, the ratio between global warming heat and uh, human energy consumption is roughly a factor of 100 different. And if you remember, we can only use you know, the minuscule 3% of our minuscule human energy consumption to remove this huge amount of heat, then the ratio of your heat removal efficiency to how much you spend on the process needs to be very large, roughly 2,000, 3,000. So that's the reason why we have to um, yeah. pursue processes that are ultra-efficient and that have a cooling return on investment, CROI, that's larger than uh, roughly two, 3,000. And yeah. when you analyze you know, uh, different methods, uh, for example, dark air capture, you find uh, ratios that are roughly 100, basically meaning uh, there are only uh, about 5% the minimum efficiency needed to, uh, to be feasible. And the same goes for uh, any other method other than uh, solar radiation management uh, approaches. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, direct air capture just seems seems um, absolutely crazy to me because, I mean, they're building they're building the Mammoth site in, in Iceland and it's due to come online, I think, maybe later this year. But you're talking the emissions capture, capture of maybe, you know, 10 of the top celebrities in the world over a yearly basis. I mean, is, is, is it worthwhile putting the energy in in the first place? Well, I mean, uh, the system is not rational, right? Our system is far from being one that's guided by objective science. It's one guided by uh, capital and uh, also mm -hmm. it's a beauty context. Uh, it's certainly providing jobs for a handful of people, it's providing a, a good source of income for a handful of people at the expense of the many more. That's yeah. just to put it at that. We just wanted to finish this, this podcast, Prickett Podcast, with asking you you know what the key milestones are for um for the next couple of years obviously we've got lots of projects ongoing but what in your mind what what, what are the key milestones for you over the next year or two uh so for the moment we're really uh focused on uh testing the uh adaptation potential uh, of uh, surface-based reflection which include residential cooling uh, water retention uh, from freshwater reservoirs but also boosting agriculture in regions that are overheating and that are suffering from drought. So over the next two years, I think uh, we would certainly uh, be uh, scaling our residential experiment substantially uh, to and beyond one hectare coverage. And uh, the goal for this experiment is to interrogate how much we can really cool down uh, outdoor neighborhood temperatures, air temperature, by uh, having uh, whole communities uh, participate in uh, this collective cooling effort for the local habitat. And then at the same time, we also want to set up roughly hectare scale as well, uh, artificial reservoir evaporation experiment to look at how much we can uh, save 
how much fresh water we can save from evaporation uh, in a, a really hot tropical climate in the dry season uh, using floating mirror arrays that are uh, fabricated from 100% upcycled uh, plastic waste and aluminum waste. So those are um, the major milestones. And if we have any extra uh, time, we'd like to perfect our engineering systems uh, for uh, refractor arrays to be deployed over agricultural fields. Um, and uh, also, we want to perfect our sensor systems as well, uh, including uh, aerial albedo meters to enable uh, monitoring uh, the reflectivity of uh, uh, different sized areas from uh, single neighborhoods to perhaps uh, uh, as big as uh, a good fraction of a square mile. And so those are some mm -hmm. milestones. Yeah, there's certainly a, there's certainly never a dull day, and there's certainly a lot to do. Um, but it's 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 exciting work, and um, it's it's brilliant work that that you and the team in in Africa and elsewhere in India are carrying out. And the, the, the data we're really excited about the data that's that's coming out and that's going to be published. Hopefully, some some will be published later this year as well. So, if anybody has a question that they want to ask at this point, um, I'm sure Dr. Tao has a a few more minutes. Okay, Deepak, you are speaker. Do you want to ask a question? So I've been following. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you perfectly. Yep. Yeah. So hi, hi, Peter. So uh, I'm I'm from India and I'm a physicist by training. Mm. And uh, so I've been following your your uh, work on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And um, you know the the idea is so simple and uh, so you know obvious sort of. But um, one question that I have about it is, um, you know, what doesn't it like? I mean, not it, it doesn't really change the total heat balance in 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 the in the atmosphere, right? I mean, you if you're reflecting off, reflecting the heat from these uh, from roofs and such, you're keeping the you know the home school or the or the surface cool, but you aren't really getting rid of that heat from the atmosphere, are you? Yeah, so, so actually uh, we do, because um, when we do direct sunlight reflection, you do not change the wavelength of the incoming photons. And uh, the at atmosphere is very transparent to visible photons. That's why at the middle of the day, you can register, you know, sometimes even more than 1,000 watts of uh, power per square meter impingement. And that 1,000 watt per square meter came from the initial um, 13... 160 watts of power at uh, the top of, of atmosphere, outside of the atmosphere. And uh, whatever losses, you know, are due to uh, absorb different absorption lines, also scattering in the, in the atmosphere by gases and sometimes by, by clouds. But even, you know, on a clear day, you get, you know, some 70%, 80% re reaching ground, which means the atmosphere is pretty much transparent to visible light. And when you use uh, uh, re reflection, direct reflection of shortwave, you actually get rid of those photons. They go some 80% back into space at the right angle. So you do okay. in, indeed okay. decrease the, the heat flows. Okay. Uh, then one more question that I have is mm -hmm. that um, if, if this is deployed on large scales, um, what would be the effect for like aircraft and let's say, you know, birds and such like, wouldn't wouldn't they wouldn't they have difficulty navigating? Uh... Um, 
So that, that's a quest, the most popular question that we get are the impact <laughs> on, on birds and, and pilots. Um, our first outdoor experimental site was approved right next to a municipal air airport in, um, in New Hampshire. Um, after the, the board reviewed you know, the potential impact and they concluded there is no real impact for various reasons. Uh, so the different mirror that we, we deployed that can be uh, managed by, you know, by people are rather small, you know, a couple meters squared at most. And these mirrors, because their sole purpose is to reflect light away back into space, not really to concentrate them into a focal spot for energy capture applications, there is no uh, focal spot uh, you know, above them, which means there's no danger, first of all, for, for birds. Uh, because the major impact for birds in a concentrating solar power plant is uh, when they fly into a focal point zone uh, and they get uh, burnt to a crisp. But that doesn't happen. We are not trying to capture the light. There's no precision engineering to ensure such tight focus. And you can more or less expect a very random uh, directions of beams uh, going up. As far as uh, you know, pilots are concerned, you, you have to put yourself in, in, a, in, in a cockpit of a airplane and imagine that you're passing through a large field of these let's say for all intents and purposes an infinitely large field of mirrors so in the type of applications we're envisaging we're talking about you know uh, most of the uh, the fields would be coupled to agriculture at roughly 10 to 20 percent aerial coverage so the amount of sunlight that's reflected off these fields back up is a 20 percent increase over the downwelling sunlight so the total photon uh, flux density in space uh, is only like 20 to 30 percent higher than what already naturally exists, even though, of course, some of this is coming from the ground. So there is going to be a, a visual impact potentially. But the instruments on, on the airplane, or, uh, because they don't navigate by photon guiding, wouldn't be really impacted for modern airplanes. As far as uh, you know, passengers and uh, pilots' visual comforts are concerned, um, because, as we mentioned, the, the mirrors are not focused, they are randomly oriented. The chance for um, many mirrors to be simultaneously passing uh, the, uh, the retina, the field of view of the, uh, of the pilot or passenger, uh, is very small. And let's think about the speed at which also the, uh, the planes are flying. They're flying at uh, uh, some 600 miles per hour, 500 miles per hour, uh, and every Second, they go through, you know, hundreds meter or something like that. So each flash of light, should it be so precisely uh, collimated, say collimated and focused, would only last for uh, a millisecond or a fraction of a millisecond on the retina uh, of the viewer, and that's shorter than uh, the visual circuitry can could register. So what realistically? would appear to the, the people at such high, you know, uh, six mile height, 10 kilometer heights, is a general brightening of the surface. Uh, not unlike uh, the contrast that you see between dark ocean and say bright desert, where there is a roughly 40% increase in, in albedo. And uh, let's say you were to cover the land by uh, some 10, 20% that you increase the albedo average over the land surface area by maybe 10%. So it's just a, a different textured lens that, that 
appears brighter, but uh, not uh, really hampering the functioning of airframes. Uh, for birds, that's a more uh, complex idea because um, many of them are uh, hypothesized to navigate, especially migratory birds, um, using uh, light as one of the, uh, uh, the ingredients in their navigation system, which also includes uh, some proteins in the retina that are hypothesized to be able to sense magnetic fields of the Earth uh, when activated by some photons. Um, so whether there's an impact, because now you have uh, changed the up and down flux densities of light, that remains to be investigated. So, so there's certainly more science to be done on that. Okay, great. So we'll leave it there. Thanks, everyone, for the questions. Some great issues raised there in that last part. And that's it for a second podcast. We're all out of time. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Tao for giving his precious time and for sharing yet more brilliant insights on the topics that matter to us most. We'll be back again next month, delving deeper into the science and hearing more updates from the project. Thanks to anyone who's tuned into the live X spaces and those that are listening to the recording on our website and other streaming platforms. I hope you find the conversation useful and enlightening. Just a reminder, you can follow our developments on our website, mir.org, that's M-E-E-R dot O-R-G, or follow our X Twitter feed at M-E-E-R-S-R-M, Mir S-R-M. And once again, Mir is a non-profit and we would appreciate any donations you can make towards our ongoing research and humanitarian efforts. To do so, go to mir.org forward slash donate. Thanks again, everybody, for listening.